0: And last week we explored the precept of honesty and usually that's translated as uh, truthfulness and as we explored in the last video I like to use the term honesty to really look at our lives honestly in body, speech and mind to be able to experience our moment to moment lives from a place of stillness and from a place of honesty. Today the precept I want to explore is Astea. This is usually translated as not stealing and Dogen, a wonderful Zen master, translates it this way. The self and things of the world are just as they are. The gate of freedom is open. The self and the things of the world are just as they are. The gate of freedom is open. And at center of gravity, the way we translate this is being satisfied with what I have. This is the precept or this is the vow, being satisfied with what I have. Another way you can translate this as is not in in the negative term as non-stealing but as not taking what's not given freely. This is a nice way of translating it also, not taking what's not given freely. I remember once having a monk visiting my home and there was a small coffee table in front of a couch and there were many books on it. And I noticed that he never picked up those books to look at them. And I asked his attendant about this once, and his attendant said that he wouldn't pick up those books uh, unless you offered him those books. Some traditions take this very far. In the Jain tradition, not taking what is not given freely is also used in farming or gardening where if there is fruit on a tree, it won't be picked until that fruit drops um, and then it it can be eaten. Um, There's an old teaching, this reminds me of a a Buddhist teaching about a farmer who was so eager to make his crops grow that he went out at night and he pulled the shoots of his crops so that they would grow faster and obviously uh, he lost his harvest. And I think this is a helpful image to to keep in mind that that we can only be in our lives in the pace of our lives. And sometimes stealing comes from really being out of the rhythm of one's life, where we move from a place of scarcity when we're out of rhythm with our lives, rather than or a place of interdependence or might even say a place of abundance, seeing the world as full rather than seeing our lives as empty uh, in the negative sense of emptiness. And um, that's why I like this translation, being satisfied with what I have. This is the vow or this is the precept of not stealing. Um, I've gardened a little bit in my life, growing vegetables, and I do every summer. And, you know, farming or gardening, I've never been a farmer, but a gardener, gardening is really just sometimes it feels like just showing up at the right time, Uh, knowing when to water at the right time, knowing when to plant at the right time. And it's also remembering what we did last year and what crops worked where. And lately I've been thinking about practice in terms of time where one of the ways we break the precept of not stealing has to do with time, not giving time to our lives, not being in time. I think impatience is a form of stealing time. When we're bored or when we're feeling feelings that we can't tolerate, we become impatient and then we're stealing time. a practice i like doing is really looking at our experience in terms of moments of time and you can try this to listen to these words as words in time or feeling a mood in your body as a moment as moments in time or noticing your apartment as a moment in time or noticing your child or your parent or your friend as a moment in time. And this is a nice little trick for the mind, because the tendency of the mind is really the ego operates much like a tourist, watching experience and always trying to take a picture of it, trying to take a photograph of what's happening to catch it outside of the stream of time. So I think one deep level of understanding, not stealing is the practice of coming into our lives and being one with time. There are so many ways that we steal time. Not listening, not taking care of ourselves, not being aware of the needs of others. These are all forms of of stealing. The, The most famous story when we talk about the precept of not stealing. It comes from Ryokan, who was an 8th century Japanese hermit. And Ryokan lived in a very small hut and didn't have any belongings. And one night, when Ryokan was out walking, a thief broke into his small hut and stole some clothing and some other items, the very few items that he had, were stolen. And Ryo Khan came home, and the moon was coming in the window, and his things had been uh, gone through and taken, and he wrote a poem that goes like this. The thief left it behind, the moon at the window. I I love this short poem. The thief left it behind, the moon at the window. Uh, If I came home and someone stole my things, I wouldn't notice the moon at the window. And this kind of compassionate, but also sorrowful attitude simultaneously, the thief left it behind. The, The one thing the thief can't steal is the moon at the window. This is a poem I think about ownership and the precepts are actually a practice of loosening our sense of ownership. and This starts to work on us over time. Uh, this past year, I was in New York City at LaGuardia Airport, and I wasn't looking for a minute and someone stole my computer right out from under me. I, ha- I didn't have it in my bag, it was just a laptop computer that I had just bought, actually, and I was working on a chapter that wasn't backed up. The computer was in a sleeve, somebody swiped it for me when I wasn't looking, and so I went to the police and I said, someone's stolen my computer. And they said, okay, well, let's see, were there video cameras there? We looked around, there were no video cameras. And so the cop took out his notepad and he started writing up a report. And I was uh, as he was talking, I noticed his his gait and how his his posture was so heavy, and how his spine was so out of alignment from the belt and the weight of the handcuffs and his gun and I kept looking at his gun, and uh, I started to imagine this thief who stole my computer and I realized that if he gets caught, maybe he would run from his house in the night when the police showed up, and he could get killed. Or maybe he would have to go to jail, and it would be terrible for him. And maybe he has a child that he needed to get money for. Or maybe he has a drug addict, a partner, or maybe he's a drug addict and he can't kick it. And I kept staring at this cop's gun and the cop kept asking me questions and then I said, stop, stop, I I can't, I can't charge, I I don't want to write a report. And the cop looked at me like I was crazy and I I said, "I, I can't write the report. And I just felt this kind of real compassion for the posture of the policeman and the life of this person who I'm fantasizing stole my computer. But more than that, I, I started thinking that the guy who stole my computer was probably so anxious now. And it's worse for him that he stole my computer than for me. There will be some way I can get another computer. I will be able to afford over a couple of months to buy a new computer but that he incurred the karma of stealing this computer and he's already, in a way, uh, feeling that and I decided not to press charges and and that's not a kind of ideological position that I don't think people should press charges and sh- people shouldn't go to jail or anything like that. It was more just in that moment, this sense that I, I don't want to go after this guy and I really think that the, the stealing is so deeply psychological in the sense that it's really the inability to give. It's being stuck in this core belief of, of scarcity. And so I've been thinking, preparing for this, uh, about the opposite of stealing. And the opposite of stealing is giving. Uh, The amazing thing about giving is that giving can transform the the heaviest of hearts. And and I think a question that we need to always ask ourselves as practitioners of the Dharma is, you know, can we really give without a guaranteed return? Can we give generously our attention? Can we give generously uh, of material things? Can we give generously of time? When we're deluded, stealing can't be stopped. If you're asleep and you're in habit, then you will steal. Even we're doing it culturally. We're living at a time where I think that as a society, we're asleep and our imagination is failing us. Or we're failing the possibility of living a better life because we're not more imaginative, because we're in the groove of deep collective habit. Our economy has to grow by 3% every year. That means in uh, 24 years, the size of our econ- economy will have to double. And fish can't handle that. Our waterways can't handle that. Our watershed can't handle that. Our grandchildren can't handle that. Being on automatic pilot, not just personally, but also as a society, is creating a situation where we're also stealing. Not only are we stealing right now from the environment, but we're stealing from our grandchildren. We're stealing from the future of birds and fish and forests. And so, in a way, stealing is not just in regard to objects, but stealing is also about relationships. That's why in Mind of Clover, Robert Aitken's excellent uh, series of talks and essays on the precepts, he translates um, stealing as carelessness. And I think in our tradition, one of the reasons why we value simple living so much, is because we don't want to get caught in grooves of carelessness. And that's not just careless about material things, but careless in our relationships. Thich Han, in his Order of Interbeing, defines not stealing like this. Possess nothing that should belong to others. Respect the property of others but prevent others from enriching themselves from human suffering or the suffering of other beings. I'll read the last part again. Respect the property of others, but prevent others from enriching themselves from human suffering or the suffering of other beings. In other words, use what you have simply. Near Halloween, There is a ceremony in the Zen tradition called Segaki. The word Gaki is a hungry ghost. This is somebody whose belly is very, very swollen and whose throat is malnourished and very, very tiny, like the thinnest straw. And because their throat is tiny and their belly is bloated, they're always hungry sometimes they're depicted as being able to swallow only tiny portions of food, so they're never satisfied. And at other times, when they have food around, when they bring it to their lips, it turns into blood. And and blood. Some, sometimes you see images of blood smeared down the chest of these ghosts. Or uh, if they have food around, it turns into hot coals. Um, sometimes you see them at a banquet table loaded with abundant food and when they sit down to eat they discover that the handles of their utensils are three or four feet long so when they pick up huge portions of food they can't get it to their mouths and they would be able to reach across the table and feed each other but they're so consumed with their own desire that they can't see the needs of others they're so consumed with their own hunger and their own self-satisfaction that it never occurs to them to use the tools or utensils on the table to feed others. And this refers to the human condition that's never satisfied with what we have. And again, this is true internally, that there is a hungry ghost in all of us that no matter what we try and give to that ghost, it's never satisfied. And being able to really learn, being able to really see that there's some part of us that can't be satisfied is the heart of the precept or the heart of the vow of not stealing. To be satisfied with what we have involves appreciating that there is a part of us that can never be satisfied. And no matter what kind of food you give her, no matter what car you buy him, no matter what uh, dress you have, no matter what clothing you purchase, no matter what house you have, no matter what partner you have, there is some part of us that never is satisfied. And to really open to the way desire just feeds on more and more desire, starts to really get into the deeper level of the precept of being satisfied with what you have. To practice not taking what's not given is to to look at the mind of attachment, to look at the mind of craving, to look at the mind of accumulation and really know its weight. Whether the attachment you have is to material possession, whether the attachment you have are to different states, whether the attachment you have where you have a hard time being satisfied is to certain kinds of experiences or what you hold on to as your identity. It's a burden. And it's the opposite of giving. And really, what's the most fundamental thing you can give? The the most fundamental thing you can give is is a body, is a self that's satisfied. What more profound thing could we offer our culture than the practice of being satisfied. When you settle your body and you settle cravings, we start to touch 10,000 things, which is a Zen metaphor for being touched by the infinite possibilities of the world. So when I breathe, bacteria perishes by the millions. I can never not kill. When I live, I try to best my best to be honest, but I will always have some delusion. And now the third precept, Astea, not stealing. Being satisfied with what I have, the only way to be satisfied with what we have is to make contact with the place in us that can't ever get satisfied. And then we begin to see ourselves as interbeing. We see the way we all are drenched in one another at a deep psychological level. And then the precepts, in a way, uh, transcend themselves. We become really absorbed in the path. When you're really giving yourself over to meditation. For example, it's, it's not really a question of doing meditation or not doing meditation. It's just fully giving your attention to breathing. You just plunge into your life freely. When we really give attention to a moment in time, we forget about our preoccupations and compulsions. So not stealing is a commitment that doesn't come out of your head. It's a commitment that comes out of your body. It's a nexus of conditions that come from your sitting practice every day, from your communication with your partner as much as possible, from your commitment to really see the different levels of the precepts operating in your life. Uh, Objects are not enlightenment. Food is not enlightenment. Your mind is not enlightenment. Other people are not enlightenment. Enlightenment is the nexus of all these conditions. It's the way we inter-are. It's the way we inter-exist. And when you start to feel interbeing, when you start to feel how we inter-exist, you won't be motivated to steal because if we're all interconnected, I'm not going to steal from you. There are no traditions where they don't talk about wealth. Every tradition I know of talks about wealth. I used to live next door to a Hindu temple, and the main god was the god of prosperity. And yet, no tradition talks about hoarding wealth. And so, I think whatever spiritual tradition you look deeply into, on the surface, non-stealing seems like just an ethical precept you try and maintain. But then at a deeper level, as we start to practice, we realize, as I was saying earlier, that to really practice non-stealing involves contacting that place in ourselves where there is fear, and where there's craving. Uh, In Buddhism, it's said that there are three kinds of gifts that you can give. The first is material. You can give material gifts. I have here a beautiful cup that somebody just uh, gave me as a gift. It has a really uh, wonderful uh, picture on it that makes me laugh every time I look at it. And, and it's so beautiful when someone gives you a small gift. Um, another gift, uh, the second kind of gift we talk about in Buddhist practice is the gift of, of helping somebody rely on themselves. So this can be through education or through technology or just through training the heart and mind where somebody can really learn how to rely and trust themselves. And the third gift in the Buddhist tradition that you can give somebody is the gift of no fear. The gift of being able to model uh, fearlessness. Um, Another way that that's translated sometime is uh, not having uh, ideas of gain based on fear. And again, this has to do with the way we often rob ourselves uh, from really being ourselves, um, by stealing even from ourselves. Last year when I taught the precepts course, um, I, uh, I wrote a little poem and um, I, I was doing this practice uh, a lot uh, this last year where I would, uh, whenever I had a a kind of run-in with my vow, with the precepts, I would write a little poem about it. I did this for a couple months. So uh, here's the poem I wrote. Uh, Stealing from myself, regret blooms. Uh, Again, stealing from myself, regret blooms. I wrote that on a day where I wasn't giving my, it was a week where I was so busy last year and I wasn't giving myself time to rest. Uh, there was always something else to do and there was a coffee shop I liked visiting and there were some people there that I hadn't seen for a week. And I really felt that I I kind of missed just relaxing and talking with them. And I spent so much time regretting, that I wasn't giving myself the time. I realized I was in this whole cycle. And and so I I wrote this, this kind of poem came to me that not giving myself the time to rest was stealing from myself. And then in stealing from myself, regret bloomed. And then I was uh, all in this place of regret. So. Uh, That was my little uh, uh, lesson. Um, I also wanted to read you something from Bodhidharma. Uh, Here's how he defines this precept of non-stealing. Self-nature is subtle and mysterious. In the realm of unattainable practice, not having thoughts of gaining is the precept of non-stealing. I love this line, in the realm of the unattainable practice. So our ideals and practice are unattainable. Not having thoughts of gaining is the precept of non-stealing. So by definition, stealing is about gaining something. So not entertaining thoughts about stealing is, or not having entertaining thoughts about gaining something is the practice of not stealing. That's uh, really really beautiful. You know, um uh, this uh, this practice is so much about uh living simply. And when you die you you really are faced with your own heart and whether the precepts have come alive in your own heart, in the sense that your heart is open to what's happening when you're dying. We die, and people die, and we die suddenly, and we also die young. Some of us die in war, in cars, and nobody really knows when. And at the moment of death, the only thing that really matters is the condition of your heart. The only thing that matters is if there's honesty present. The only thing that matters is your heart. And our wealth, our accomplishments, the stuff we've accumulated, our degrees, the art we've made, the institutions we've built, in our heart of hearts that stuff isn't there. Uh, How will you be when you die? Are you living in a way now where you're busy accumulating and you don't have time to look into your own heart, to look at your values? Uh, I really encourage you to ask this question. It's so simple to talk this way, to say when you die, really uh, nothing else matters, but what's going on in your heart. But I really encourage you to kind of drop your ideas about that and and really to feel that. Um, I, I think this practice of sitting meditation combined with taking care of ourselves, being aware of the needs of others, and committing to the precepts, is really about coming to the bottom line in our lives. Our lives are so short, in a way, and that's the amazing thing about the world. The the world's amazing because it doesn't last. Our bodies are wondrous because they're vulnerable. Our relationships are profound and difficult and joyous and tragic because we're vulnerable and our relationships don't last. And I think when you sit still, you come to the bottom line of your life. You come to the bottom of your own heart where you can see clearly and honestly Uh, whether or not you're living in a way that values interdependence, that values community, that values relationship. And so I thought I would just finish with uh, four suggestions for how you can work with that part of you that is always going to be unsatisfied, so that we can develop this practice of vowing to not steal. So the first suggestion, so the, I've been calling these the four steps of interdependence or the four steps, I would say, of radical interdependence. And the first step is voluntary poverty. That's how we talk about it in the world of religion, voluntary poverty. But another way of saying that is simplicity, Uh, living with simplicity, living in a space that is simple to maintain, having a schedule that is simple to manage, eating simple food. When you have a lot of stuff, you have to maintain it all. And it requires a huge amount of energy. And also if you have a lot, a lot of stuff, then not only do you have to maintain it but you start getting paranoid because you're aware of impermanence and you're aware that you're going to lose the stuff. That's why uh, people who really uh, hoard a lot or people who are really greedy are also equally paranoid because you know that what you're holding on to is also impermanent and you get scared. So, so the first step is radical simplicity. The second step is being tuned into the needs of others. Like the hungry ghost sitting at the banquet table, who's so consumed by his or her own desire that they don't notice anyone else at the banquet table. Really to, to live in a way where you're tuned into your own needs and also the needs of others. If it's just your own needs, practice gets solipsistic. If it's just the needs of others, you become a doormat and you become burnt out and you forget that this body too is also part of the ecological fabric. So number one, radical simplicity. Number two, aware of the needs of yourself and the needs of others. Three, is to develop an ecological self, to develop a sense of self rooted ecologically. I think we couldn't replace the uh, old teachings of enlightenment with this idea of developing a radical uh, view of oneself as ecological. Uh, this means seeing how you depend on others you depend on water, you depend on air, you depend on a simple, straightforward food system. Um, This is the third step. The fourth step is maybe the most difficult. The fourth step is to model, to demonstrate, to show your commitment to these previous stages. So to show radical simplicity, to show um, in how you do your life that you're taking care of your needs and the needs of others, to demonstrate an ecological self. I have many ideas of how we can uh, spread this One thought I had would be to ask all the most well-known yoga and Buddhist teachers who are seen as leaders to publish every year their income and their expenses so that we can be transparent in where our revenue comes from and what we spend our money on. I don't know how this would go over, but I'm up for doing it. I would volunteer to do this. And I think this would be a really interesting thing for uh, people who talk about simplicity and talk about interdependence to also uh, reveal how in their life they uh, demonstrate this. Uh, I don't know if we're ready for it, but I think this could be very interesting. so, to, to sum up, uh, I started this talk today by talking about time. How one of the ways we steal is stealing time. And how this is a kind of impatience. And one of the ways we can work with this is whenever something's going on for us, just to see it as a moment in time, hungry, See hungry for the time being. See angry for the time being. See pissed off for the time being. See joy for the time being. See there's happiness for the time being. And really start to see how everything that you experience in your life is only experienced for the time being. And this helps shake off the tendency towards gaining something, towards projecting ourselves into the future, to craving, is just to experience what we experience for the time being. Secondly, I talked about the hungry ghosts and how there is some part of us that's never satisfied And to be able to start to get to know that part of you is the deepest level of the precept of not taking what's not given freely. Because when you are satisfied, the world seems whole. And lastly, this kind of, uh, set of stages, if you will. And and I'm just working out this idea now, and I don't know if when I finish filming this, I'll think it's a bad idea, but this kind of idea of four steps of recognizing and embodying interdependence. The first step is simple living. The second step is being aware of your own needs and the needs of others. The third step is cultivating an ecological self, replacing the sense of enlightenment as trying to get up and out with a sense of horizontal awakening, where we wake up to the fact that what we think of as a self is not just constructed or co-constructed by genetics and family, it's also constructed by our society and by our ecology. And fourth step would be demonstrating or modeling interdependence in how we live, in how we speak, in how we move through the world, in how we use money, in what we buy, in what we don't buy, in how we eat. And that way we activate the precepts. They're not ideological, they're not philosophical. the core of Patanjali's impulse, the core of the Buddha's impulse, is not to become philosophical. It's to take these precepts into our lives in each and every moment without getting stuck in the idea that the precepts are a philosophy. So as I said earlier, not stealing is a commitment that doesn't come from your head.